Well, if you have your own copy of God's Word with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah. To the book of Isaiah, not the book of Zechariah, but the book of Isaiah. We turn here this morning, Isaiah chapter 9. We turn to Isaiah chapter 9 for a couple of reasons. Those of you who have been here recently know that we're in the middle of a study of the book of Zechariah. In fact, we're over halfway through that study. We probably have about six weeks or so to go before we wrap things up with Zechariah. It was originally my intent to just press on and finish Zechariah this year. In fact, if we kept going this week and in the weeks to come, we would finish Zechariah on the final Sunday of 2022. But as I had almost completed my sermon for Zechariah 9 this week, this is like on Friday afternoon, ask Rena for verification, I had just about finished my sermon, Good and Timeless Truths from Zechariah 9, for us to consider, we will consider in the new year. The bulletin was made, it was ready to be sent out. I rushed into Rena's office and said, stop, hold the phone, because I found myself drawn to the season of Advent. And of course, Advent is around the corner, the Christmas season is beginning to show itself. I confess for all of you purists out there, I'm already full on listening to Christmas music. I know that's a no-no, but I couldn't, I mean the weather's deceiving, it feels like it's the end of November already, so give me a little grace there. But in all seriousness, I love Advent, and it's not that I didn't want to do an Advent series, it's just after you've been in a place for 12 years, you've done a lot of different Advent series. You've done a lot of different angles of looking at the story of the coming of Jesus in the flesh. And so I thought, well, we've been seeing Christ all through Zechariah. We'll continue to see Christ all through Zechariah. So let's just press on through Zechariah. And then I decided, no, we're not going to do that. We are going to focus a little bit more intentionally on the season of Christ's coming to earth. So why not wait till next week, right? Because next week is the first Sunday of Advent. Well, here's where stopping in Zechariah 8 and not moving on to 9 makes sense. Because Zechariah 9, where we were supposed to be today, is actually a leap forward in time. Zechariah is often divided into three parts. Chapters 1 through 6, those visions that we looked at. Chapters 7 and 8, which happened two years after the temple's halfway done. As we enter chapter 9, and I'll talk more about this when we get there, but as we enter chapter 9, we've jumped again 40 to 50 years in time ahead. The temple's already done. Things have changed. And so stopping at the end of last week is a much more natural place for us to stop in regards to Zechariah. So all of that to say, by way of intro, that today's message is, in a sense, it's a prelude to Advent. It's a prelude to the Christmas season. First Sunday of Advent isn't until next week, but for the next five weeks, we're going to camp out on Isaiah chapter 9, this familiar passage to so many of you, to so many of us, and we're going to deep dive into the descriptions of the promised one that are found in verses 6 and 7. Today is also a prelude, I think, to giving thanks. This is a busy morning. I hope that many of you are planning to stay for lunch, if not all of you, and I hope that our worship will continue 
as we give testimony in the assembly of the saints of the Lord's goodness in our lives. And so it's my intention for this meditation to be briefer than normal. We'll see how that goes. I'm going to work my best at it. But before we read it, before I read, I know this is a lengthy introduction. You better take this into account when you start preaching, Nate. I will. Don't worry. Before I read it, especially since we're just kind of jumping into the middle of this book, I want to orient you a little bit where we are. We're jumping back, since we've been in in Zechariah, we're jumping back in time about 200 years from where we were. So we were in the 6th century B.C., now we're jumping into the 8th century B.C., so the 700s B.C., right? Because time is counting down. We're in the 8th century here in the book of Isaiah. And in the life and the history of God's people, Assyria... This foreign nation, this foreign enemy is looming large in their midst. In fact, chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah deal with the threat of Assyria. A threat that, as we know, will eventually overtake them because of their sin, because of their rebellion against Yahweh. Isaiah, like most Old Testament prophets, he's full of doom. He's full of judgment, but he's also full of grace. He's also full of promise, and we'll see it this morning. And so that's where we are. We're going back in time a few hundred years, a couple hundred years, to the 8th century BC, uh, before Zechariah's time, and we're jumping into the Lord's words given to his people then. It's our tradition for you to stand for the reading of God's word. If you're able to do that, I invite you to do that. Isaiah chapter 9, I'm actually going to read a little bit before you see me pop up there on the screen. I'm going to read the last verse of chapter 8. Chapter 8 in your English Bibles carries the not-so-subtle heading, the coming Assyrian invasion, if you have your copies there. So I just want to read verse 22 of chapter 8, which isn't up there, but just listen to it and then I'll jump in to verse 1 of chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire." Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. A couple words I want to zoom in on, specifically out of that verse that I read to you before we read our passage 
for this morning. Amidst the distress, amidst the darkness, and amidst the gloom, what did God's people do? To where did they look? What do you do? Where do you go? What do you look to? You see, unless you're a distress, darkness, and gloom denier, which it's hard to be, I think, in this day and age that we live in, in every day and age that we've lived in, you have only two options. You look down or you look up. Verse 22 that sets up this chapter says, they looked to the earth. You see, you look to yourself, you look to mankind, you look to its resources, you look to its ability to repair, or you look outside of yourself to something greater, to someone greater. Now, Israel's situation, ancient Israel's situation here in the 8th century was unique, but the reality of the world and the reality of their hearts was no different than the reality of our world and the reality of our hearts. Human existence is hard. But God's Word, and specifically Isaiah 9, reminds us that God is not indifferent to our gloom, to our distress, to our darkness. No, He knows and cares about His people so much that He is willing to intervene into human history on their behalf. And Isaiah 9 is all about that intervention. Isaiah 9 promises the one who intends to transform human existence and transform human destiny. Isaiah 9, spoiler alert, is about Jesus, right? These first five verses are all informed by the poetic birth announcement that we're going to spend time unpacking over the next several weeks. The birth announcement that begins in verse 6, which I didn't read, for to us a child is born. To God's people in the 8th century, it was a promise yet to come. To us here today, it is a promise that has come and is coming again. And today, as we just look at these first five verses briefly, three truths for us to briefly meditate on. This is kind of the 30,000 foot view of these verses and of this passage. In the weeks to come, we're going to settle in a little more and dig a little deeper into what these things look like, how Jesus does these things. But for now, for today... Three simple but world-changing gospel truths that address the doom, the gloom, the darkness, and the distress. The first one is this. Jesus transforms gloom into glory. It's the first thing we see here. Jesus transforms gloom into glory. That's just verse 1. Look at it with me. Our passage begins with this reversal of gloom for a very particular group of people, right? Those living in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. These are the northernmost territories of ancient Egypt. These were the people literally and figuratively, we're going to talk about that in a moment, these were the people that were on the fringe, 
literally on the borders of Israel's land. And that meant two things. First of all, it meant that these people bore the brunt of foreign invasion. Remember, we talked about this in in Zechariah. We talked about the the four uh, points of the compass and and the chariots and the horsemen coming from those directions. We talked about how important the north is, right? Because the enemies come in pouring from the north. They don't come from the east where there's desert wasteland. They don't primarily come from the west where there is water. They don't come from the south except for Egypt down there. They come from the north. And so these northernmost territories would be the ones who were first hit and hit the hardest by foreign invaders, specifically the Assyrians. But not just that, they, they bore the brunt of scorn as well. Now why would they be scorned? Well, these were backcountry folk. right? They, they lived way up there in the sticks. And not just that, but being on the borders, they were in constant contact, constantly influenced by non-Hebrew people and cultures. Right? So, so not only did they, they weren't in Jerusalem, they weren't in the ports of influence and wealth, they were kind of on the fringe, they were border towns, but then they were, they were a mess of people. And this is why they're called the Galilee of the Gentiles. So it's to these, Yahweh is saying through the prophet Isaiah, it's to these, not to the religious elites, not to the influential of the day, but to these who would first come the promised one. The prophecy is for those who are most vulnerable, those whose situation looks the bleakest, those who weren't quite mainstream, right? We know if we know anything about the heart of God that God loves these. God loves these kind of people. And so, It's the people in the northern territories that will be the first to glimpse the breaking of the dawn. Not just bearing the brunt of enemies, they'll get that, but they they will be returned double-fold as they will be the first to witness Jesus transforming their gloom into glory. Right, this is, this is what we read in Matthew chapter 4. Leaving Nazareth, it says, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the peoples. Indeed, most of Jesus' earthly ministry was among the people in the north, in the northern region of Galilee. Most of His disciples were chosen from the north, despised Galileans. You see, Jesus not only comes to transform gloom into glory, but He came to do it among those who needed it the most. Prioritizing the the nobodies over, over those whom we might have preferred, 
And this is still his way. This is still his way, the lowly in the world's eyes, the outcast and the lonely and the vulnerable, those in the deepest of gloom, those convinced of their inability to measure up. Those are the ones that Jesus loves to transform into glory. Those are the ones that Jesus loves to make his children. And boy, I hope you receive this as good news. Because we're all in some way a mess. We're all in some way despairing and in gloom and convinced of our inability to measure up. And if you don't feel any of that, we need to let this passage feel, let this passage impress that upon us and and make us feel that. It's the first message of our text this morning. I kind of wanted to end right there. That's, that's enough to chew on in terms of Isaiah chapter 5. But let's, let's finish the first five verses with the second truth, which is this. Jesus transforms darkness into light. Jesus not only transforms gloom into glory, but Jesus transforms darkness into light. Here we move into verse 2. I think that we've all had those nights, nights of restlessness, nights of fear, nights of anxiety, nights when you're just waiting for the sun to peak its head above the horizon, longing for those rays to wash over the landscape and bring an end to the hopelessness of the dark, bring a new day, a fresh start. Things were so bad for God's people that theirs is a land of deep darkness, the text says. The NIV translates the Hebrew as living in the land of the shadow of death. See, there is a depth of darkness in their circumstances. Not just because of the stark reality of foreign invasion and what the consequences of foreign invasion would be, But also there's this darkness in themselves, right? This inward condition of of rebellion, of, of misery. It's the epidemic that plagues our land and our hearts. The world is broken. The world is dying. And I'm not talking about climate change. I'm talking about the inward rot that produces death in that which we touch as a society. We know less than the people of the 8th century need the light, the life that light brings. And God promises to 8th century Israel that it's coming. And notice, it's not coming through their own efforts. It's not coming through something they invent, through something they work out, through something they create. It's coming through a light that is outside of them. God has fulfilled that promise by sending Jesus, the the Zechariah of the New Testament. Says this about John the Baptist in Luke 1. And you, child, 
will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And indeed, Jesus declared in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so Isaiah 5 is not just about Jesus transforming distress or gloom, excuse me, gloom into glory, but about transforming darkness into light to make us children of light, to remove the darkness of our sin, and to give us the hope of no more night. Well, that's verses 1, that's verses 2. What about the last few verses? One final truth, and then we'll wrap it up. Jesus transforms distress into joy. Jesus transforms distress into joy. We all long for joy. Joy is one of those words, one of those Christmas words, right? We hear it a lot. We talk about it a lot. It's the heart's desire behind every gift that we receive, that we desire. All the images we see in verse 4 are of a people in distress. There's this yoke of burden on their backs. There's a staff being lifted up to make them comply. And there's an oppressor's rod that's driving them to labor. Right? These are very real things for those in the 8th century. The Egyptians had done this already to God's people. Generations prior had felt this. And now the Assyrians would do the same. And yet Yahweh says, in the midst of this distress, there will be joy. Crazy joy. Crazy joy. Look at how this is expressed in verse 3. The kind of joy that undergirds patriotism and national pride when a country is growing and strong. Still in verse 4, the kind of joy when a crop is way bigger than you anticipated and the barns are full for winter. The kind of joy when you, after a long battle has been waged, when victory is achieved, and now you are dividing the spoils. Those are the pictures that God gives to His people. And this is the kind of joy that Jesus comes to give. This is the kind of joy that Jesus promises for for the future, for their future, for our future. A glory surpassing any hardship that they would have experienced on earth. But it's also a joy that is for us and even for them now. When things aren't as they should be. How can it be so? Because of what we read earlier. What Jesus said earlier. We can take heart because He has overcome the world. We can consider it joy even when we face trials of many kinds. We can even, according to Romans 5, rejoice 
in our sufferings. We did a great exercise in our community group last week that I'd like to encourage you to think about doing this week at your dinner table with your family. Not only did we share the highs of the year and give thanks for the highs of our year, what God has done, but we all shared the low points of our year. And then we gave thanks for those low points. We considered how the Lord might be in those low points, how the Lord might be using those sufferings. That's how we can transform them into joy. That's how Jesus transforms them into joy. And it's all because of this unlikely hero that was born in a manger and that died on a cross. Look at the end of verse 4 and then 5. The prophet says, You have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What is God doing here? God is reminding His people here as He reminds them of the promised joy that is coming. He reminds them of the victory of Gideon. Remember the story of Gideon, this leader whose army was reduced to 300 men, whose strategy was trumpets and smashing jars and waving lights in the middle of the night which created havoc among their enemy and gave them the victory? Through that unexpected means, deliverance and victory came. And now the prophet is saying, boasting an even greater victory in an equally surprising way, Jesus, the baby born in a manger, will come to transform our distress into joy. Brothers and sisters, this is a passage for for nobodies, for those mired in gloom, those struggling with despair, those fumbling in the dark, those distressed by their own bondage to sin or to themselves. It's a passage that reminds us to don't look to the earth for answers. They're not there. We don't need smarter people. We don't need better strategies. We don't need different politics. The only light, the only hope is found in Jesus. It's found in Advent. So my simple encouragement to you this morning is to look to the Son, to look to the birth of Jesus, look to the good news of great joy. For to us, a child is born. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this prophecy and for what it proclaims to our hearts. We thank you that we're about to enter a season in the church in our time and place and in our culture where we intentionally consider and and look to the wonder of You sending Your Son, of You, Lord Jesus, giving up the glory of heaven that You might be made flesh for us. That You might bring peace. That You might make us right. And then all these ripple effects come into our lives. Come into our circumstances. For now there is light. For now there is joy. For now there is peace and hope. 
Oh, Father, we pray as so many of these things are familiar to our hearts. I know they're familiar to my heart. The songs that we sing, the passages that we hear, even the traditions that roll around again. We pray, I pray, that you would bring renewed freshness, that you would bring renewed zeal. Father, that you would bring revival to our hearts and to those around us. Father, use us in that way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.